And if you are able, I'll ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word, which this morning comes, the second letter of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, the letter from Jesus to the church at Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Friends, this is God's word. You may be seated. Let's review a little bit. What are we doing this summer? What is our series of studies? We are looking at the seven letters of the book of Revelation. Letters that are instructing us and equipping us and telling us how to be the church in the world. In other words, we said that these seven letters from Jesus, in other words, Jesus' discipleship of the church, give us a fairly good picture, a snapshot, if you will, of what traits, of what virtues, of what characteristics that are required for us to live in an increasingly hostile, pagan, and pluralistic society. If our mission is that of go and make disciples of all nations, to be a faithful, reconciling presence in the world, and we look at the world today, a world that is increasingly hostile to the things of Christ, to the ways of God, and in a world that is extremely pluralistic, meaning in one sense, anything goes. What is required of us really is two things. Obviously, we need to know what we believe in, know the truth, what is kind of the discipline is known as apologetics. But also, there's another thing that I think we fail to take into account. What type of people? What kind of people? In other words, what virtues, what traits, what characteristics need to be true of us in order to be an effective witness, to be an effective faithful presence in a hostile world. We saw last week in the first letter, the church at Ephesus, that we are to cultivate the virtue of love. Jesus' word against the church of Ephesus is you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned, you have forsaken love of God and love of neighbor. And there was a call to repent, to return to your first love. This morning, he is speaking to the church at Smyrna, and I want to pose a question for you as we kind of enter into this text. Why is it so hard to maintain our first love? I don't know about you. Maybe you went home last week and you went, I'm convicted. Okay, I've got to return to my first love. Do repent, And then it's like Monday morning hits. Okay, repent again. Here we go. And that's a good thing, by the way. If you're repenting again, keep doing it. That's a wonderful thing. But why is it so hard to maintain our first love? Why is it so hard? Let's be honest. If any of you think it's easy to love, 
Let's sit down and talk sometime. Love is extremely different. See, love is so much more. Love is not a feeling. Love is not just a, a gooey, gushy, gushy, oh, I sincerely. Love is a skill. Let me tell you something about love. It is an action verb. It is a skill in the Bible. And that means there are two choices. You can either love well, and none of us really do that, but hopefully we are growing and loving well. That's the whole point of the fruit of the Spirit. You manifest the very personality of Jesus. That is love and joy and peace and patience. That's the multidimensionality of love. That is the skill of loving well. When you are bearing the beauty of the personality of Jesus, and it's coming out, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Or you can love, I don't know how to put this in an adverb. I was thinking your love can stink, and I'm not sure, do I say love stinkily? I'm not sure how to word that in an adverbial form. But you get the point. Love is a skill, and why is it so hard to love? I'm going to put it in one word. Suffering. See, love involves conflict and tension. At the very least, even with the person who may love you in return and love you best, there's conflict and tension within ourselves. Which of us really, think about the way the Bible describes love. When it says, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, that we are to consider other people as more significant than ourselves, that's an attribute of love. That we are to look out not only for our own interests, which by the way, we all get A pluses at. We're good at that. We know how to do that. I don't ever need to teach anybody how to look out for your own interests. That's never a topic in our discipleship. But the next part, to put ahead of your interests the interests of others. See, even if somebody is loving you in return, to really love biblically will involve tension, will involve conflict, will involve suffering. And so this letter, the letter, this what we call prophetic oracle to the church at Smyrna, explains why it's so difficult to keep our first love. And that's because of suffering. Let's once again put this letter, the letter in Smyrna, in the context, in the setting in this book. So let me review a little bit some of what we talked about last week. We learn in Revelation chapter 1 that the author, the recipient of this revelation is the apostle, the evangelist John. He's now an old man, he's probably in his 80s, and he's in exile. He's in exile on the prison island known as Patmos, off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And why is he there? Why is he in exile? Because he would not compromise his faith. Because he was being a disciple faithful as part of the church in the world. And as one historian reminds us, John is there because out of allegiance to Jesus as Lord, he could not abide by who was the Roman emperor at the time, a man by the name of Domitian, his edict that all Roman subjects were to worship him, the emperor, as God. Because for John, and you'll see this in the church at, at Smyrna, the issue was who is Lord, Christ or the emperor? And John says, I can be a good citizen. I can be thankful. I can be faithful. I can pay my taxes. But I swear allegiance Loyalty and obedience to one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for Jesus will involve suffering. And what did he get as a result? Exile to the island of Patmos, which is why he writes, Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother, listen to the words carefully, your brother were part of the same family, and partner, partner in what? 
in the tribulation and suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And while on Patmos, he received a revelation, an unveiling of the majesty of the Lord himself. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet. What was John's doing? What was John doing? He was worshiping. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day mean, means he was worshiping the Lord Christ. And while he was worshiping, he heard a voice and he turned to see the voice. And what did he see? He saw the risen Jesus, gloriously transformed, the same person he had walked with, the same person he had done life with, the same person who called him out of all the disciples, my beloved disciple. And while he is worshiping, he is given as one commentator put it, an unveiling of the majesty of Jesus on account of whom he is suffering. A good summary of the context of these, liter- of these letters is provided by one commentator, a man by the name of Daryl Johnson, who wrote a book called Discipleship on the Edge. Listen to how he put it, and this is a good summary of what's going on here. He says, here's the major practical point of this unveiling the unseen reality that John and the churches back on the mainland needed to have reinforced. When John turned to see the voice, what did he see? He saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of these seven gold lampstands, he saw Jesus. The seven golden lampstands, as the text tells us, represent the seven churches. And there in the middle was the risen, living, glorified, reigning Jesus, standing where? Not above, not below, not a far away, distant, right smack dab in the middle. Which means that he knows very well all that is going on, not only in the churches, but what is also coming down upon the churches. So from the middle of the lampstands, Jesus dictates seven messages, seven prophetic oracles. Each message is different in context, but similar in format. Each letter begins by Jesus identifying himself using an image that is appropriate to each church in each city. He tells the church what he knows about them. He tells them what he has against them, except in two cases, Smyrna, which we're looking at today, and Philadelphia, which we'll look at in several weeks. Then he tells them what to do to remedy their situation, warning them of what they will happen if they ignore his instructions and promising them a promise here in this text, the crown of life, eternal life to those who heed his words, who abide in his love. The message that he gives to the church at Smyrna, if you want to look down, the words are in your program. If you don't have Bibles, verse 10 summarizes the message Jesus is giving to the church at Smyrna. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And he tells them the prospect of their suffering, the prospect of their persecution is about to happen. He says, the bo- he doesn't say it might happen. He says, it's about to, he says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, and we don't know if that's a literal 10 days, or if it just means kind of a completion, what we do know is it's limited, it's temporary. It won't last forever. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
to the church that is about to undergo the promised prospect of significant suffering Jesus gives two commands. Do not fear and be faithful. And you know, it's an amazing thing. And I have to admit, I struggle with this all the time because I don't consider myself a very courageous person. I think that the number one command that is given in the scriptures when you look at Old and New Testaments combined is do not fear. To learn to be fearless. And here he's saying, be, in, be the church in the world by your fearless and faithful witness in the midst of significant suffering. In other words, the heartbeat of the messages of this church, the message of encouragement to this church, is that the world needs a witness, a faithful presence, needs a type of person, a type and the characteristic that they need. So this is not just know your beliefs, this is what kind of virtue needs to be cultivated in you. And the virtue that's talked about here is enduring, persevering, fearless, suffering in the face of the world. How in the world do we do that? How in the world do we begin to walk that particular path? That, and to that question that this letter gives two answers. You know, Jesus says that we are transformed, so we grow by the renewing of our mind. One of the things that we need to recognize is our mind needs more than just kind of specific pieces of information. You've heard the saying before, you've got the forest and you've got the trees, and you won't know the trees unless you know the big picture, the forest. If we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, we need to know in terms of our Christian walk, our Christian life, that our life will always have a trajectory, the forest, if you will. That our, and we need to know what that trajectory is. And this text tells us, this text tells us that there's a contour to our life, and it's basically death and resurrection. It is the same contour, the same trajectory. Here's the forest. Our life will take the same trajectory that Jesus' life did. Why? Because the definition of what it means to be a Christian is not that you just accept Jesus like he's out there, there's a body of truth, and you kind of go, huh, looks good. I accept that truth. No. To be a Christian means you are united to Jesus Christ. His life in yours. I have been crucified with Christ. He died, you died. I no longer live, he lives in me. The heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian is you are in union and communion with Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is saying, I am a part of you. And that means the trajectory of our life will take on the same trajectory. See, a student is not above his teacher. A slave not above his master. We're not above. We will walk the same contour that Jesus did. His life looked like death and resurrection. Our life looks like a continual self-giving, submission, sacrifice, death and resurrection. So we want to look at this text from those two perspectives. That the contour of our life means suffering and that the contour of our life means hope. Another way we could put it is our life looks like cross and crown. And the contour of the cross means suffering, and the contour of the crown means hope. I don't want to discourage you, 
My motive, my goal, my hope is from this text that hope fuels us. What did Paul, this in one sense is a narrative of what Paul said to the church of Rome. Some amazing words when he wrote in chapter 8, I consider, what is he saying? I have this perspective. I consider that our present sufferings, the contour of our life, our present sufferings, here's how now hope will drive him, is not even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. In other words, that hope fuels us to be the type of people that can suffer well in this world. First of all, the contour of the cross means suffering. First, a little bit about the city of Smyrna, because the city of Smyrna's history is actually one of death and resurrection. The city of Smyrna was destroyed in 580 B.C., only to be resurrected, to be rebuilt in 290 B.C. So its history is a history of resurrection. It's a history that showcases the beauty of resurrection. And even today, the city still exists. It is the city of Izmir, Turkey, on the west coast of Turkey, the third largest city in Turkey, with a population of about four million. And it is to this church in this city, the city that's known for the manifestation of the beauty of resurrection after suffering and death, that Jesus instructs them that they will indeed suffer. suffer. Persecution is promised, but to take heart, He says, do not fear. This is a letter of encouragement. This is not a letter of rebuke. This is is one of the only only two letters in the seven to Revelation where there's no rebuke. This is one of them. This is one, and the word encouragement means speak courage into. Jesus is speaking courage into the people of God. I have no idea what you are facing right now, what you might be facing in the future, but I do know God's word wants to speak courage into you. Jesus is writing and encouraging us that although Satan may be behind the suffering, there are both seen and unseen realities in life, there's mystery, but that Jesus is in full and sovereign control. Your suffering will be temporary. I loved how one commentator put it. He said, evil is on a leash. I had to write that one down. We need to know that in order to say, I consider our present sufferings not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. But we need to know that in this world, if we are to be a faithful presence to the world, what kind of people are we to be? What kind of virtues? We need to know that the contour of our Christian life, though, does mean suffering. Think about what Paul said, first of all, to his protege, Timothy. He said to Timothy, and this is just before he was about to die, He said, indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think about what he wrote to the church at Philippi. He says, and again, the language sometimes boggles my mind. Take it seriously. He says, for it has been granted to you. That means it's a gift. We do need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How often do we look at this as a gift? It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Ask yourself the question, do you view suffering? And I don't mean just physical suffering, and I don't mean just catastrophic suffering. Suffering in the Bible is, what is our character in the midst of everyday life? 
chasing kids, ordering a house, working with people who don't like you, dealing with bitter people, resentful people, enemies, dealing with physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering, the awkwardness, the defensiveness, the tension. Dealing with life in a fallen world, do we have the perspective that God has granted you? Why? Because your life is taking on the very contours of Jesus Christ that has been granted to you to reflect and manifest the beauty of Jesus Christ in and how you suffering. How many of us look at suffering? And he's not saying, when we say look at it as a gift, he's not saying, oh, it's a good thing um, to somehow go, I love my pain. But we're to see and have the perspective of what God is doing in us and through us. That means part of it is authentically feeling that pain, dealing with it, not suppressing it, not denying, and not just trying to fix it so it goes away. That means honor the pain as a gift, and let it do the work that God intends for you to do, and that is painful. How do we do it? Look at verse 9. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your affliction. Now the word he uses there for affliction or tribulation is an extremely strong word. It's a word that means pressure. That's why we know it's just not physical. The word actually means crushing pressure. And as one commentator put it, it would evoke in the minds of first century people the picture of a person tortured to death by being slowly crushed by a great boulder laid upon him. The church in Smyrna, along with its disciples, were being the church in the world by living out their faith under this crushing pressure. We see what the crushing pressure is about to be when he says, I know your poverty, so it's economic in nature to some degree. And he says, though you are rich, so in other words, he's saying, you have spiritual wealth. I'm in the middle of the golden lampstand. I'm in your presence. And if we don't think we have spiritual wealth, it shows how little we value the presence of Jesus. Because Jesus is saying, yes, you have poverty in the world. In this case, you're losing some of your economic prosperity. Why? Because of your sin? No, in this case, because of the fact that you did not compromise your faith. And as a result, you're suffering for it. But I know your pressure. I know your affliction. And I know your poverty. Though you are rich, you're rich. Why? Because I'm in the midst of you. I'm in your presence. I walk among you. I don't stand above you. I'm in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. When you come to worship, do you recognize what the scriptures teach us about worship? Hebrews chapter 12, for instance, it says, therefore you have come to Mount Zion. We have come, in a sense, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to a taste of heaven, to heaven and earth being in some way mysteriously united where thousands upon thousands of angels, a myriad of the heavenly host, are glorifying and exalting and praising Jesus, and we are a part of it. And that is what is going on in worship. It is not about just sitting here and taking in information. It is about participating with the glorified, risen, reigning Christ. Worship changes us. Do we value worship? This is what... Jesus is giving us to sustain us under crushing pressure. D. 
Do you know how encouraging this would have been to the people who are hearing, I'm about to be thrown in prison, I'm about to possibly be martyred for my faith, I'm about to undergo this? See, let me ask you this question. When we are going through something tough, something difficult, when we are undergoing pressure, whatever that pressure might be, physical, emotional, relational, whatever aspect, whatever component of life, what is it we want? Usually all we want at first is for somebody to come alongside, empathize with us, and say, I know. I understand. I know the pressure you must be feeling. I know how devastated. Notice the order. See, what does Jesus, the order is Jesus begins with empathy. He begins with understanding. Then he speaks, do not fear, be faithful. But he starts with the two simple words, I know. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know the contour of the cross means suffering. He's in the middle. He says, I understand. I'm in the middle of the seven golden land. You know, one of the things, I've just got to be brutally honest with you. I think the church as a whole, not just Spruce Creek, but we're part of the church. I think the church as a whole, the evangelical church, stinks at coming alongside those who are suffering. I think we're very good at fixing things. We're problems. I know what you need. You need, or have you tried this? Or have How often do we come alongside someone who is suffering and simply say, I know? And even if I don't know how you feel, I empathize, I understand, I come alongside. You must be devastated by this pressure. And then we offer practical help. Jesus does say, do not, but the order is important. See, it's because he's in the midst of them that he can say, do not fear and be faithful. The contour of your life means suffering. The contour of the cross means suffering. What does the contour of your life look like? And what's going to give us the power to be this type of person? Look with me at the end of verses 10 and 11. See, we need to know the contour of the crown means hope. See, your life must be fueled by hope. The end of verse 10 and verse 11 says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The promise is a crown. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now look at this. First of all, what is the crown of life? The crown of life equals eternal life. And to not be hurt by the second death means to not have to undergo the final judgment. Why? doesn't say you won't face it. You'll face it. But you won't undergo it because Jesus has taken it for you. He's received. He underwent. He got the penalty and the punishment of your final judgment in your place for you. That's why the scriptures can say there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation is a judgment. Condemnation is not just some emotion. Condemnation is a verdict. 
And when it says no condemnation, it doesn't mean you're not condemned and then you blow it and you're condemned and then you repent and you're not condemned. It means condemnation, that verdict has been taken up by Jesus Christ and it no longer exists for you. If it existed for you, God is not just. Because the verdict that he gave Jesus would not be enough. And so because of that, it means you don't, you are in Christ, you participate in Christ's heavenly, victorious life. And so the contour of the crown means hope. Do you have this hope? I love how one commentator wrote it. He put it, he says, I will give you the crown of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. He says, those who are born again in Jesus, those who come to life in Jesus do not die the second death. He writes, those who are born once die twice. Those who are born twice die once. He writes, I'm, not, I'm into dying just once. Friends, how about you? A hope is a future prospect that fuels how we live, how virtue, these characteristics, love and now suffering, endurance, perseverance, courage, is fueled in our lives. One other challenge, and this is a challenge, and I need to close with this. The same writer continues right after this, and it's kind of a challenge to our lives. He says, there's a way out of the pressure, you know. He says, if you don't want this pressure, there's a way out. He says, just don't get serious about loving Jesus. He says, just go with the flow of the culture. Just settle for a comfortable, run-of-the-mill, watered-down kind of discipleship. He calls it Christianity light. He says, just settle for a status quo blessing kind of discipleship, and there will be no pressure, and there will be no passion. We're looking at what does it mean to be a disciple? What traits, what virtues are required? Oh, friends, let hope, the hope of the crown of Jesus, the crown of life, that there's no condemnation, the hope that the cross leads to, fuel you. And fuel us together as we, oh, may we never do this alone. Remember, this is a letter to a church. We need to come alongside one another as our life takes on the contour and the trajectory of cross and crown. Father, I pray that our life would look like this and that we would grow in this and that we would at least be committed to growing in this. That we would have the mind amongst us that is ours in Christ Jesus. That the shape of our life would look like a cross and a crown. And that that hope would fuel courage in our lives. And the courage would not just be for us alone. May we never stand isolated and alone. May we stand alongside one another. Ministering to one another. Jesus, as you minister to us, saying, I know your affliction. I know your crushing pressure. I know your tribulation. May we be that kind of church and that kind of witness in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.